We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, if you would. 1 Kings chapter 3. There are many men who have influenced me in, in deep and lasting ways over the course of my lifetime. But one of the men who has influenced me in a, in a major way is on the screen before you. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. The doctor, as they called him, was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, where he would uh, begin to serve with a, a, a very famous man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. He was G. Campbell Morgan's associate pastor and eventually accepted the call to serve as senior pastor. The doctor would serve at Westminster Chapel then from 1938 to 1968. That's quite a tenure, I think you'd agree. Now, Lloyd-Jones served during this period in British history and church history when it was becoming very popular, even in the middle of the 20th century, to, to water down doctrine. Some of you remember those days, and actually it has become much worse since those days. Many had gone down the path of liberalism, as it, as it were, but not the doctor. Martin Lloyd-Jones refused to take the liberal path. He believed, writes Pastor Jason Meyer, that it was a mistake to water down the great doctrines of the faith. I got to hear an amen on that one. That was a mistake from the standpoint of Lloyd-Jones. So, in 1952, he began, brace yourselves, a Friday night lecture that lasted for many years where he would teach on theology. Just imagine, every Friday night, the church would come together and he would teach this series on Christian doctrine. It might surprise you to learn that not only have I, have I read most of those messages, but just a few weeks ago, I discovered that many of those messages are actually in an audio form. The... The quality is not the greatest, but what a delight, what a pleasure to hear Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones teach to that crowd of people. It might uh, shock you to also learn that the gathering became so popular in London that they needed to move to a new, new venue to accommodate the crowds of hungry people. Hungry people who wanted to hear the word of God, hungry people that wanted to hear theology. Lloyd-Jones preached his last sermon at the age of 80 on June 8th, 1980. And two days before his death, not quite a year later, Lloyd-Jones wrote a note with a trembling hand to his wife and children. Two days before he went to be with the Lord, he wrote something, and I want you to pay careful attention to this amazing note. He wrote these words, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. You see, it's the words, do not hold me back from the glory that really grabbed my heart and got my attention. When Lloyd-Jones contemplated his heavenly home, the, the word that came into his mind was the word glory. 
This is a man who had recalibrated his focus. This is a man who had recalibrated his longing for his heavenly home. For the last few weeks, this has been the focus of our study on Sunday morning, namely the recalibrating of our hearts. And specifically, we aim to recalibrate our focus for heaven and to also recalibrate our longings for heaven. And once our hearts are adjusted in a way that honors the Lord, once we come to the place where we are truly longing for heaven, our next task, and I I trust that we're there together, I trust that, that each of us, young and old alike, are longing to go to our heavenly home. Once we're there, I believe our next task, it's a very important task, and that is that we must recalibrate our views concerning heaven. So we recalibrate our our hearts, our longings, our desire to go to heaven. Once we come to the place where we say, Lord, I'm ready to go. Some of you have actually said that to me. You said, Pastor, I'm ready to go. I can't wait to go to heaven. Then we need to make sure that our our views of heaven are properly recalibrated. And that's the title of the message this morning. Recalibrating our views of heaven. This is no small task, as you might imagine, since many of us have, have been taught through the years various views concerning heaven. These are views that we've held on as long as we can remember. And sometimes those views become very, very difficult to discard. When a, a preacher or a teacher or a theologian stands before you and begins to challenge the views that you have held since you were a little child, that becomes a very difficult difficult task but we must as we embrace the principle of sola scriptura if we if we come face to face with a view of heaven that is not altogether biblical we are faced with the decision will we discard that view i want to argue this morning that an important part of the recalibration process when we recalibrate our views of heaven a very important process that we must go through is to develop the habit of biblical discernment and the passage that will help us with this it's not a passage that speaks directly to heaven and the subject of heaven but it does address the matter of discernment i think you'll find it very interesting and so with your bibles open would you stand to your feet with me as we read first kings chapter 3 beginning of verse 9 and this is the word of the lord and these are the words of king solomon and his prayer request to the living god He writes, give your servant, therefore, King Solomon, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Let's pray together. Father, what a a penetrating prayer request. We thank you for uh, the heart in this particular case of King Solomon as he as he prays for a heart of discernment. 
And I pray that for each of us today, God, as we consider the topic of our heavenly home. We ask, God, that you would recalibrate our views of heaven. Uh, If we are holding on to or cherishing a view of heaven that simply does not match the biblical record, give us the, the integrity and the desire and the ability to throw that view away and to embrace the view that we find in sacred scripture. We look forward to not only today, but next week as we continue to walk through this recalibration process so that we would understand our heavenly home and and cherish it and long for it and to see it as the word of God proclaims it, the truth of our heavenly home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to have you look with me at two very important headings. The first is negative. The second is positive. The first heading is stated as follows, that discernment that we just read about demands that we discard any unbiblical views of heaven that we might have, that we discard any unbiblical views of heaven that we are clinging to. I want to begin by defining discernment. Discernment is is not a topic you hear much about in local churches. And that is a really a, a tragic state of affairs because the word of God calls us to be discerning. We are to to pray this prayer along with King Solomon that God would give us hearts and minds that are discerning. The simple dictionary definition of what it means to discern means simply the ability to judge well. The ability to judge well. Now, we all live in the same culture, right? And because we live in the same culture, when you hear that dictionary definition, by the way, this is not even the biblical definition. This is straight from the dictionary. When you hear that phrase that it's the ability to judge well. Even in a Baptist church, there are some who hear those words today and they say, I don't know if I like the word judge. In fact, I don't even know if I I appreciate the notion of judging at all. A more focused definition would be as follows. This is taken from the book, The, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. And I would highly recommend this book. My friend Tim Challey says this about discernment. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. There you see built into Challey's definition is the notion of judgment where we separate truth from error. That means someone's right and someone's wrong and we separate error from the right view. We separate truth from error. There are six implications, at least six implications I want to share with you as we unpack what it means to be a biblically discerning person. First of all, discernment, you need to understand, is a learned skill. You don't come out of the womb and automatically discern good from evil. You see, discernment takes time to develop. It is a learned skill that takes effort. It is a skill that takes practice. And I I understand that some of you have the spiritual gift of discernment. Some of you have that gift. But I need to, to challenge the rest of you. While many of you do not possess the spiritual gift of discernment, I have some news for you this morning. Even if you don't possess the gift, you are called... To be a person who is committed 
to being spiritually discerning. Let me ask this. How many of you would say you have the gift of evangelism? And I hear this from time to time. You say, there are a few of you who have the gift of evangelism. And somewhere along the way, people in the local church thought to themselves, well, it's these four people over here that have the gift of evangelism. Therefore, I'm off the hook. Well, guess what? Even though these people over here have the gift of evangelism, we are all called to exercise this notion of evangelism. We we tell people about the Christian faith. We tell people the gospel. We tell them what Jesus has done. In the same way, we are all called to be discerning people. I want to also add that this is not only a skill that needs to be developed. This is a skill that is spirit-enabled. This is not some kind of a a mental head game. This is not something that, that you say, I've got a high IQ, therefore I am discerning. Rather, this is a spirit enabled gift. It is it is God the Holy Spirit that helps you, that enables you to recognize good from evil. I think that you would agree with me that we are at an all-time low in the Christian church when it comes to being spiritually discerning. We are ready to accept anyone and everything and any song and any book and any magazine and every ministry because we don't want to be considered judgmental. Yet even the dictionary definition of the word tells us that to discern means that we have the ability to judge well. And so discernment is a learned skill. Number two, discernment is a discipline. It's a discipline. Once again, nobody learns this discipline naturally. It takes time to develop. It takes discipline to develop this discipline of spiritual discernment. Number three, and this is really where the rubber meets the road. Discernment makes judgments. In order to be a discerning person, you will be forced to make judgments. You will be forced to say, that's right and that is wrong. That's good and that's evil. And we all know what contemporary culture will say. They will point the finger back at you and say, how dare you judge? Who made you our, our judge? Who made you a part of the jury? But discernment demands that we make judgments. Scripture demands that we make judgments. Number four, discernment ultimately makes its final appeal to the word of God. Once again, this will prove to be controversial because holding such a strategy appeals to a higher authority. Which, by the way, suggests that that we are holding to an absolute standard. We are holding to uh, the word of God that tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt what is true and what is error, what is good and what is evil. Number five, discernment assumes that there is a right way and a wrong way to look at a given topic. Now, the way I'm wired, I like that a great deal. I have always been a a black and white person, and I think the word of God calls us, does it not, to be black and white people. There is the right way, and there is a wrong way. And we see this throughout the word of God, do we not? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. That is a very blatant statement. There's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. Finally, 
Discernment is an act of obedience for the Christ follower. Whether you have the spiritual gift or whether you don't have the spiritual gift, we are all called once again to be people of spiritual discernment. I want to ask a a related question, and that is, why is it that people in the local church are failing in large measure to discern? There are at least four reasons that uh, we can discover. First of all, people generally have a low view of Scripture. I hope that is not true of Christ Fellowship. But in the culture in general and in many local churches, people have a low view of Scripture. Listen once again to what Tim Challey says. He says, while all Christians are eager to embrace the Bible and to treat it as a precious possession, few are willing to give it the preeminence that it demands for itself. And yet the Bible demands that we allow it to be sufficient to address all areas of life and practice. You see, the scripture helps us with every category of life. The scripture tells us what direction to move. The scripture tells us and helps us with decision making. We must embrace a high view of scripture. But this is a reason people are failing to discern. They don't embrace a high view of scripture. They embrace a low view of scripture. There's another reason they fail to discern. And this one's tragic. And we have seen this uh, uh, develop over the years in the local church. And that is that many people have a low view of God. Some of you, if you were over 60 or 70, remember the little book by J.B. Phillips. Remember the book, Your God is Too Small. And Mr. Phillips was on track. We tend to have low views of God. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. But he goes on to say this. He says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And I must tell you that this is a quote I refer to over and over and over again. The most important thing that we can say about ourselves is what we believe about God. And the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You show me a man or a woman who has high views of God. We learn an awful lot about that person. But you show me a man or woman who has low views of God. And we also learn much more than we would like to know about that person. Low views of God, I would add, lead to low views of heaven. Did you hear that? Low views of God lead to low views of heaven. There's a third reason that people are failing to discern. We've seen that they have low views of scriptures and low views of God, but they also have high views of tradition. They have high views of tradition. Whatever we've been told about heaven, you see, we tend to embrace. And so if you were raised in a family that taught that when you go to heaven, you get wings, there's a good chance you still believe that. But the word of God never, ever says that we get wings in heaven. 
If you've been raised in a family that says, I, I realize I'm, I'm on thin ice this morning. But if, if your parents taught you or your Sunday school, te- taught, Sunday school teacher taught you that you get a halo when you go to heaven, that's a view you need to discard. You need to get it out of your mind. You need to get rid of the pie in the sky and go back to the Bible and see what the Bible teaches about heaven. Oftentimes, our views about heaven, as I've indicated, are developed in childhood. And so I believe it's time to to come to the place where we, could I say it this way? We grow up. Where we grow up and we stop thinking like children and we mature in the Christian faith and we go to the Word of God. And we're going to do this in great detail next week to see what the heavenly portrait truly is like. We have a high view of tradition. There's a fourth reason why people are failing to discern, and that is that we have a high view of feelings. I'm convinced that many people develop an understanding of heaven. They develop their views of heaven based on what their feelings dictate to them. Now, let me ask, are you going to go with your feelings? Are you going to go with the 66 books in the big book? You see, we embrace, once again, the sola scriptura principle, and we refuse to be governed by our feelings. Now, let's talk for a moment about the imperative, the the command to discern. Would you hold your finger in 1 Kings? We'll come back in a moment to 1 Kings 3 and go to Colossians chapter 2. And I realize that probably on a fairly regular basis, I address the young people. And I, I vividly remember being invited to, to teach at youth group. And it's only happened a few times, really. And I enjoy it each time I do it. But I remember, and I think you all are going to remember this, including students who are back from college. So Brenna and Morgan, Kirk, and Arlen, and Kyle. Am I missing anyone? You're going to remember this. Do you remember the... Oh, hi, Kyle. Do you remember, do you remember Bleppo? Yeah, they remember Blepo. So look with me at Colossians chapter 2. I, I just remember it, it made this impression. I, I don't know why, but it made the, this impression on young people. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. The very first word is the word that comes from the Greek word blepo. That's the word that the young people are so excited about. Blepo, or see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That Greek word blepo is a word that means to, to discern. It means to, to gaze at with intensity, to have the power of understanding. It means to discern mentally. It means to, to weigh carefully. It means to examine. It means to focus on. It means you look at a view. You read a book. You listen to a song. You listen to a lecture. You listen to a sermon. And you say, I'm going to exercise the the biblical skill of spiritual discernment. Blepo is written in the present tense, which means there is never a time in the Christian life where we, we sit down and take a break and say, oh, I don't need to be discerning today. It means that when you go to Disneyland, you still have to exercise biblical discernment. It means when you go to Las Vegas, you still have to exercise biblical discernment. 
It means that when you go to New York City, you exercise biblical discernment. When you go to the zoo, you exercise biblical discernment. So it's a, it's a present tense verb. But it's also written in the imperative mood. That is to say, this is a commandment. It's as if Moses came off the mountain and he shared with Israel, these are the Ten Commandments. This is not one of the Ten Commandments, but this is a a very important commandment. That is the command to exercise biblical discernment. Now, there is urgency. And I, 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 I weighed and I thought and I, I discerned myself about how it is that I can show the, the passion behind this command to discern. Because there is an urgency attached to this imperative. It would be like this. It would be like if you took a trip to Glacier National Park. How many of you have been to Glacier National Park? Now, you read reports from time to time about a hiker or a camper being... How do I put this delicately? Mauled by a grizzly bear. There are grizzly bears who who roam free in Glacier National Park. And so your trail guide would, would say something like this to you. Before we leave camp, I want you to be alert. I want you to be on your guard. I want you to be looking left. I want you to be looking right. I want you to be smelling. I want you to be listening. I want you to discern your surroundings. Watch carefully. Don't get lazy. Because if you do, it might end up you're going to be in big trouble. That's the the urgency attached to this term blepo. Go over with me to Matthew chapter 24, and we don't need to look at all the instances, but I do want to show you two. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, we see from the lips of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, he says something similar that Paul says in Colossians 2.8. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answers them, and it's difficult in an English Bible to see the the urgency and the imperative, but this is the same word that comes from blepo. Jesus answers them in verse 4, see, guess what word that is? Young people, that's blepo. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and man-made philosophy. Here Jesus uses the same term. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Blepo, be on alert. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Every song you listen to, every book you read, every lecture you hear, every classroom that you sit in, every professor that you sit under, Christian or non-Christian, is we are exercising biblical discernment. Watch out that no one deceives you. Also in Mark chapter 13, Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. Same word. It's the word blepo translated see or watch out that no one leads you astray. And so as we continue on this series together, studying our heavenly home, we think about some of the some of the crazy notions that we picked up along the way. Some came from early childhood. Others came from books that we have read where we learn about playing the eternal harp, you know? Where did the harp come from? Or having that halo. Or here's one that always got me. I don't want to go to heaven because it's going to be eternally boring. 
Well, I don't know what Bible that person was reading because heaven is going to be the most unbelievable experience that will last for all eternity. There are movies that I believe have affected our views of heaven. I think of a movie I saw in college starring Robin Williams called What Dreams May Come. And I remember thinking through and doing my best to exercise biblical discernment. In those regards, there are books, many, many books that have been released over the last several years that influence our books concerning heaven. And I thought it would be just a kind of a a, not only a challenge, but a a fun thing to do together to to look at a book that has been written recently on heaven. This came out eight years ago. It was a runaway bestseller. Some of you have read it. It's the book that was turned into a movie. Heaven is for real by Todd Burpo. This is a book that was on the bestseller list for many, many weeks. And I remember that I thought to myself, I need to read the book. I need to recognize what people are, are digesting. And so I was in Seattle one day sitting at the, the Pike Place Market Starbucks. And I sat there and read this book. And I want to give a brief summary, a brief evaluation, and give a, really a case study for how you and I can exercise biblical discernment. The first thing I want to highlight is just because it's in the Christian bookstore doesn't mean it's good. Has everyone learned that lesson yet? Just because it's in the Christian bookstore and, dare I say this, because it's a bestseller does not mean it's a good book. Heaven is for Real chronicles the testimony of a a little boy, Colton Burpo, a four-year-old child who experienced, tragically, a life-threatening illness. And while he was thankfully never pronounced dead during his traumatic hospitalization, he recounts in this book the experiences of his time in, and I put this in quotes for the people listening on the CD later, he recounted his story of his time in quotes in heaven. The book contains several firsthand accounts that describe how he went out of his body, how he spoke with angels, how he sat in the lap of Jesus, how he saw the rainbow colors, and how he got to pet Jesus's rainbow horse. Yeah. Thank you. His rainbow horse. And this becomes a a wild runaway bestseller. And so despite all the accolades and the interest the book has generated, there are some very serious problems in this book. Let me say, heaven is for real. Do we believe that? Heaven is for real. It's actually a great title. But the theology that emerges in this little book is deeply troubling. And my submit to you this, this morning that readers need to carefully discern. They need to, to weigh out the content with biblical discretion. There are at least three problems that surface in this book. And these are problems, uh, general problems. There are many, many, many problems. The first problem I want to focus on is in the realm of theology. There are theological problems. This book promotes views about heaven that simply do not match the teaching of Scripture. And I can almost, I can almost feel it. I said not to place all of our focus on feelings, right? But I can almost feel it like, Pastor, come on. It was really popular. And for crying out loud, it was a four-year-old boy. Give him a rest. We need to exercise biblical discernment. Here's what little Colton describes. 
He described being afraid in heaven. When I read that, that was like the end of it for me. Being afraid in heaven. Here's what he says. Jesus had the angels sing to me because I was so scared. They made me feel so much better. Yet the scripture describes heaven as a place where all our tears and all our sorrows and all our fears will be erased. When John the Apostle describes the new heaven and the new earth, and we will discuss this more in the days ahead, he writes in Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is a great example. What if it means for the, for the people of God to exercise biblical discernment? Mommy, daddy, I was afraid in heaven. And we go right to the text. We go right to the Bible to see what the word of God says. This little boy describes his experience with the saints in heaven who actually have wings. Quote, everybody's got wings, he says. Evidently, Jesus is the only one in heaven who doesn't. He goes on to say, Jesus went up and down like an elevator. Additionally, Colton describes or he remarks how everyone looks kind of like angels. They have a light above their head. Of course, there is nothing, as we've already said in Scripture, that even hints at the idea that saints who they don wings or have halos above their heads. This is the kind of banter that has grown more and more popular at funerals when we grieve those who we love as they enter their heavenly abode. The only problem is it doesn't match the teaching of the word of God. Colton eagerly describes his encounter in this book with the Holy Spirit. He claims to have been seated next to the Holy Spirit and maintains that the third member of the Trinity is, in quotes, kind of blue. He's kind of blue, yet the word of God never attaches a color to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we learned in Veritas this morning, possesses all the attributes of God and stands alongside the Father and the Son. Turn with me to a few biblical problems. Heaven is for real, promotes a a mindset that militates against, once again, the sola scriptura principle. Colton claims, quote, angels carry swords so they can keep Satan out of heaven. He maintains, quote, Jesus wouldn't let me have a sword. He said I'd be too dangerous. He claims to have seen Satan and he claims to have seen Mary kneeling down before the throne of God. And the reformers rightly said that scripture, the sacred scripture was their highest authority. And so to report this kind of information about heaven is tantamount to adding to Scripture, activity that is forbidden by Scripture itself in Revelation chapter 22. All these extra-biblical revelations indicate a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And so I would say this, with all the books that are being published about our topic, heaven, is we make sure that it matches the biblical record. The author notes, and this is the father, we had taught Colton about our faith all his life, but if he hadn't really seen Jesus and the angels, I wanted to become the student, not the teacher, said the dad. And the humility in my mind is commendable. But the father is charged with discipling his children and raising his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. 
Additionally, the author expresses his belief in being careful about what he says from heaven, from the pulpit. He writes, quote, I teach what I find in Scripture, close quote. Yet the author is also quick to accept the testimony of a small child, even if the testimony militates against what the Word of God says, which is a dangerous practice, to be sure. Finally, gospel problems. There are gospel problems in this little book. This book contains some disturbing ideas of what constitute the gospel. The little boy remarks, you'll like this, Jesus told me to be good. Jesus told me to be good. This is nothing more, my friends, than moralism. This is a subtle brand of of works-based righteousness that the Scripture finds so repugnant. Consider Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And so there are too many people who are embracing a so-called gospel of good works, a, a gospel that finds people making their way to a holy God. Someone was teasing me last week, and they asked if I was going to go up the ladder again. Those of you that weren't here, I had a ladder. Lenny helped me. It was the biggest ladder we could find in the church, and we, we set the ladder up. And your pastor, who's afraid of heights, put one on the line for it, and I went to the top of the ladder and preached the sermon. To illustrate this point, we cannot climb the ladder and merit favor in the eyes of a holy God, but that's exactly what we find here. J.D. Greer The new president of the Southern Baptist Convention beautifully summarizes the gospel. He says the gospel is the announcement that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son Jesus to die as a substitute for our sins. And that all who repent and believe have eternal life in him. And so, my friends, let us cast aside a gospel of of good works and let us continue to embrace the purity of of gospel grace, the biblical gospel. As I've previously said, it is true. Heaven is indeed for real. And the scriptures remind us about the glory of heaven over and over again. But God's word also demands that you and I exercise biblical discernment. And so let us pray together individually and corporately the prayer of King Solomon. As he said, may may you give me a discerning mind to understand the right way and the wrong way, the good way and the evil way. That I discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your people. That was the negative. That's the first heading. Discernment demands that we discard unbiblical views concerning heaven. The second heading, briefly, is that discernment also demands that we affirm what the Scripture says about our heavenly home. A foundational truth, and we begin just to to lay the foundation today and move forward next week to learn more. Remember, heaven is the dwelling place of God Almighty. Heaven is the dwelling place of God Almighty. Deuteronomy chapter 26, 15. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel and ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Please remember as we talk about our heavenly home, as we learn about our heavenly home, the dwelling place of God is holy. Therefore, it is only fitting that a holy God inhabits 
a holy place. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 27. Then the priests and the Levites, they arose and they blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. I like what Wayne Grudem says. This is the textbook that the men and iron men are studying this year. He says, quote, heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. And that is where we turn our attention next week is where in the final sense is our heavenly home. Next week, we are going to, I just want to kind of bait you and get you excited to come back next week, is we are going to look at the distinction between the intermediate heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And the distinction is of massive, massive importance. For our purposes today, as we have learned the importance to be discerning people of God, to discard what is unbiblical and to embrace what is biblical, to affirm what is biblical. Here's my question. This morning, are you focusing on your heavenly home? Are you focusing on your heavenly home? You know, it was maybe five weeks ago, I was over visiting with Louis and Doris Yost. And I always loved visiting with Doris about what I would be preaching on. And whenever Doris was unable to be in the service, she always listened to the sermon on her iPad. I thought, what a cool lady. (laughs) This lady who is not a part of my generation, and she listens to the sermon on her iPad. And one of the last conversations I had with Doris, I was was telling her that we were gearing up to, to study the doctrine of heaven, and I was so excited about it. And she was so excited about it. Never knew that the third message in that Doris would be in heaven, that she would be enjoying her heavenly home. And so is your focus set on your heavenly home? Are you prepared to recalibrate your views of heaven to match the biblical portrait that we find in sacred scripture? You know, this morning we began by getting a a small glimpse into the heart of one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who recalibrated his focus on heaven and it also recalibrated his views of heaven and his longings for heaven. He pleaded with his wife and children two days before he died with a trembling hand, do not pray for healing, do not hold me back from the glory. On his tombstone are etched a few simple words. In loving memory of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the beloved doctor, 1899 to 1981, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, that each of us would follow the example of the doctor, that we would have our eyes fixated upon the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find our affections fixated on the saving, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, by default, will be focusing on our heavenly home. I look forward to coming back next week and looking at the distinction between the the intermediate heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. I would just like to just move forward and do it right now, but we're going to wait until next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
the brief reminder of our heavenly home. God, I pray that you would help us here at Christ Fellowship, that you would give us the ability to discard any views concerning heaven that are not from the Bible. And I pray also that you would help us to affirm everything that the word of God teaches about our heavenly home. God, recalibrate our views concerning heaven, recalibrate our longings to go there. Lord, some of us are not too far away from enjoying our heavenly home. Others have years to go. Wherever we land this morning, may we have a deep desire, a longing to be with you. A desire not only to be with our loved ones and to experience the glory of heaven, to be with our sovereign, our merciful, our good, our saving God. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.